Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Matthew 22, and Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted calf are killed. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and they went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully, and he killed them and killed them. And when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burnt up their city. So we start on a joyful note today. Um, Jesus is at the, the end of a series of interactions with the Pharisees. He has come in, he cleansed the temple, he got the money changers out of there. Uh, and he's proceeded to go through all of the priestly duties and prove that he was the guy in the temple courtyard doing the priestly duties. Comes back the next day, withers a fig tree, explains to his disciples that it's going to be their, they're going to be able to pray directly to the Lord and that their prayers are going to be powerful prayers. They're going to move mountains. Um, and so that, that process of, that we saw in chapter 21 is that they are following the son of David into a new religious era and that the priesthood is being dismantled and its authority is being removed so that the new priestly leaders are going to be Jesus' disciples, the people that choose Jesus. Um, it's interesting that tonight we're in 2 Samuel and we're seeing David's kingdom rise. David has the opportunity to seize the crown and go in and demand that everybody follow him as king and he doesn't do it. He, he goes in and the people of Judah make him their tribal king. And then eventually after civil war, the rest of Israel makes him a king too. So what we're going to see with Jesus and the model of David is that the kingdom of God is never a forced thing. It's always voluntary. It's always something that you're invited to like a wedding feast. It's a gift and you don't have to come into it. So Jesus uh, is, is showing what this kind of obedience looks like. He's showing the Pharisees have not been there. And frankly, the self-righteous Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians are all attempting to bully Jesus. And in the first century, the way you do that, the way you prove you're the, the bigger rabbi on the courtyard is that you pose a question to another rabbi and, the, and you stump people. So it was kind of this game that happened with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They'd each try to pose questions that would entangle the other person. Um, and it sounds kind of like a cruel game, but it's not a lot different than what we see in the public marketplace of social media right now. Just a constant trying to get you with these gotcha questions. And so we see that rising back up in our society, but Jesus dealt with it. It's almost like a game, but what it did is it determined who the greatest teacher was. It determined who the greatest rabbi was. So if you're an up-and-coming rabbi, you try to pose questions that those old guys have never heard before, right? And you really don't. I mean, it takes you decades to get to a point where you really understand the law in that kind of way. So these rabbis were kind of testing Jesus and poking and prodding to seeing if they could stump him with some of their biggest questions, the questions that would get all their students, right? So when it says in verse 1, Jesus answered we're still responding to the question that they gave to him back in chapter 21, verse 33. If you go back a page, they said, by what authority are you doing things and who gave you this authority? So he's given them a couple different, he gave them the parable of the two sons, which were about obeying their father. Um, and in that, he shows the Pharisees to be hypocritical. Then he gives them the parable of the vine dressers. And he, he, they basically, the, the fun part is, they, in responding to Jesus' question, they declare their own hypocrisy and they declare their own judgment in the vine dresser parable. So this, they're both framed on the earth and now this third one that he gives is like the kingdom of heaven. It's framed as a heavenly thing. So where the first two are kind of pre-resurrected Jesus, 
This last one, you could argue, has something to do with how God's going to react to people as they react to the resurrection of Christ. So this third parable is about a wedding celebration. Wedding celebration looks a lot like Revelation chapter 19, the end of days. Heaven is, is likened unto a wedding feast. And there's this the wedding supper of the Lamb, it, it is. And, and at that wedding supper in Revelation, Jesus is the main, the, the groomsman in that wedding. So we should assume Jesus is making a similar connection. So what happens next with this parable is absolutely stunning for the Jewish reader. Remember I said Matthew is directed at the Jewish people? There's a lot of stuff going on here we just don't get because our culture doesn't do weddings like this anymore. So there's going to be a ton of references uh, if, if you are like my wife and you take notes. I'll try to slow down when we get to them. But we're going to do a lot of bouncing around the Bible today because I want to make sense of this and I want to hear what Jesus is trying to say. So, and it's worth it. It is really worth it. When he sets up this kingdom of God, uh, it's amazing. So it says a certain king and then there's a wedding. We should know that when the king throws a wedding, it's a big deal. And it's going to be the wealth of the entire country, not just a person getting married. But this invitation would be a huge honor. Like, I didn't get an invitation to go to any of our president's great events or the Met Council dinner that was last week. Nobody sent me an invite because I'm not that big of a wig. But in this case, there's a group of people that get these invitations. And you'd think that would be a huge honor to be invited to somebody's wedding. It still is, you know, at some level. Verse 3 is the first invitation that goes out. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited, the elect few, the special chosen people like the chosen nation of Israel. And, and you'd think, who would ever refuse to go to this? Like, honestly, like you may or may not like a certain politician, but if Biden invited you to a wedding dinner, it'd be hard to not go. Like, if someone in that kind of position says, I want you to be here, why would you refuse that? And I think this parable is to present that idea. Why would anybody refuse to come to the wedding supper of the Lamb? Why would anybody turn that down? But they're not willing, is the words he uses there. So, what would happen with a Jewish wedding is that they would make the arrangement that this, these, this couple's going to get married, one man and one woman, and they're going to get married to one another, and the announcement would go out to everybody, so-and-so's getting married. But they wouldn't put a date on it. You know how today we do the save the date things right away? They didn't do that. There's no save the date. It was just, they're going to get married. And so everyone would get excited about it. The groom would go start preparing a place for the bride, and that's why the date wasn't set. The groom had to make that place happen. And as soon as the father approved that the place was ready, like dad had to come through and say, yes, you know what you're doing. So you couldn't like do your first birdhouse and call that your... your the place you're going to live. You had to have some talent before you could get married. So the dad would say, I approve, and then the, and then the, then the second announcement would go out that says everything's prepared, everything's ready to go. And when the second one goes out, that's when people would start gathering and everything stops. Your schedule stops, your work stops, because there's a wedding that's going to happen. So the wedding interrupts the life of everybody that's going, but it's also a huge honor to go. Does that make sense? Like, it's a completely different culture, but it's, there's some real joy set up, and I think God influenced Jewish culture to have that set up to be a mirror of what heaven's going to look like. So the first invite goes out without a date. Basically, you need to just prepare for it, get ready for it. The other thing that would go out usually with that um, first invite is that the king, because he's wealthy, and you got people working in the fields, not wealthy. You're supposed to bring, like, your best clothes. Like, when we go to a wedding, we dress up nice. But in the first century, in the in early Jewish culture, they didn't have five, six sets of clothes. They had one robe. And if you're a working, laboring type, and the king invites you to a wedding, you're not going to go in your crappy, torn up, muddy, dirty stuff. So the king or a wealthy person would send out wedding garments for everybody to wear. And that's how the Jewish culture operated. So you'd take that garment, and it was like, not only is it an honor to go to the wedding, but you just got a new cloak or a new robe. So it was kind of an exciting thing that you got. It's like you got free tux rentals or gown rentals. And you got to dress up and get ready. And then the king knew that everybody who showed up to the wedding looked, looked right for it. They're dressed for it. So it would be an opulent, big event. And it would celebrate not just the king and the king's family, but that the whole country was doing well. And it was partially how people got new cloaks and new clothes. So that wedding would go out. In verse 4, then, you see where a second invite goes out. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, I've prepared my dinner. Like, dinner's ready. Everything should then get interrupted. 
It comes quickly, it comes fast, you don't know when it's coming, and then it's time to go to the wedding. And at that point, it's like, oh, it's wedding night, and, and you, you drop everything, you put on your robes, and you go to the wedding. And it, 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 the gospel message is simply that. Everything's ready, come to the wedding. This is where we've had a lot of talks about how do we share our faith with people? And I just thought that line was great. Everything's ready, come to the wedding. That's how we share our faith. We're going to the wedding feast and you're all invited. And there's robes and we'll talk about those. But in verse 5 it says they made light of it. In the Greek that's Amelia. It means to be careless with something or neglect it. Like a kid with their parents' toys. or you know, They didn't spend enough time or attention to it. So they made light of it. They didn't put weight on this invitation. It's no big deal. Which seems, and this parable is supposed to seem preposterous. Who would do that? Who would take a king's invitation and just not care about it? It says they went their ways. And then in verse 6, some of them were even spiteful about it. This is completely irrational responses to it. right? We know people that go down and do street witnessing kinds of stuff, right? And they'll talk about this. People, you'll explain it to them with total reason and clarity, but there's no reason with these people. It's completely preposterous that you would turn down the gift of God. But these are archetypes of how people react to the invitation of the gospel. Some people are indifferent. Some people are hostile. Um, later on, after the, the Pentecost, Acts chapter 5, uh, they're going to be indifferent towards the gospel. Acts chapter 7, they're going to be hostile. They're going to stone Stephen because of the gospel. So these are definitely reactions we've seen throughout history and how people react. You got three of them. There's the, the going back to the farm, going back to the business, and then the wicked or the spiteful people. The farm people are like, I'm just too busy. If you've met a farmer, they never get vacations. There's always something to do. You always got it. You can't leave the cows unmilked, right? And so the busyness of life just consumes people. And, and, and in those folks, it's not even, well, like a wedding would be great to go to. I just don't have time. I got to take care of my own stuff all the time. They don't, they're not willing to drop everything, right? And so some people go back to their farm. Then you got the business. And remember, this isn't like going down to Madison Avenue and working in a cubicle. This is people that would run shops in town where they could close the shop down, but they don't want to. So the farm people are probably people that just can't see any way out of their duties and their day-to-day -day life. The business people are people that just want to keep making money. They don't know how to shut down. And they don't know how to give to God what's God. They want to just want to live for themselves. And then you get the absolutely nonsensical people, the spiteful people, the wicked people, the hateful people, and the people that are scared of those people. Like we got a call this week um, from, we we're going to do some street music. Stuff's shaking her head. Really nice letter. You know, we understand you people like to sing about the Lord and Jesus, and we're just concerned that we would have people upset about that on the street corners. So we, we just want to be aware of that. And I wrote her a nice note back saying, yeah, we're not going to change how we do music. Like, that's what we like to sing about. Um, but don't be mistaken. Every form of music has a message behind it. So you're putting some kind of message on that street. And it might be, you know, alcohol, adultery, you know, um, living for yourself, but you're not necessarily you know, you're going to allow Jesus to be part of your street thing, then good luck with that. Um, so, and we just kind of parted ways. I don't want to be doing things for people that don't want me there, but you just think, how wicked is that, right? And that you got, really, somebody's going to be, a, like if I were walking down the street and somebody was singing their Buddha songs, of which there aren't any, um, but if they were, like, I wouldn't be upset with that. I'd be like, oh, neat, they're very happy Buddha people, and I'm glad they like singing about their Buddha, you know, and it just wouldn't bug me a bit. But when you sing about Jesus, the reaction is spiritual. And there's people that are hateful towards Jesus. And they can't stand it when people are joyful in the Lord. So then, verse 7, the reaction of the king is absolutely reasonable. He's furious about it. The, the, the word furious is furious, exactly how we translate it in the English. Absolutely upset can't understand it. So it's not just to deal with the people, but to burn up their city. And this looks a lot like what we saw in the last chapter with the fig tree getting withered up. Jesus looked at a tree with leaves. It looks great, but there's no fruit on it. And he's like, you're not useful for anything. And he withers the tree. So this burning up the city seems to go in line with what he's trying to tell these Pharisees. The temple era is about to be judged. And make no mistake, we're only about 40 years from Jerusalem being absolutely destroyed. Uh, General Titus, the Roman, takes over Jerusalem. Um, 
within a generation, like the people hearing Jesus, some of them would still be alive to watch Jerusalem absolutely be flattened in a few years. One of the things Titus recorded in his, in his journals as he conquered Jerusalem, and this is not a guy, <laughs> this is not a guy that worships Jehovah. This is a Roman general. But one of the things he wrote, I quote, we certainly have had God as our assistance in this battle. He actually believed Jehovah was with him in conquering Jerusalem. And here's the other thing. The fire that destroyed a lot of Jerusalem wasn't started by the Romans. It was started by the Jews trying to get rid of the Romans. And then the fire got out of control. So this idea that the, the city is going to burn up is a parable, but it also kind of happens. So this is one of those things. And then I'll finish the parable. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding's ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Okay, they were worthy of the invitation, but in rejecting it, they just made themselves not worthy. They're not, they're not, they don't want to be here. They don't. Jesus never forces anyone to come into the kingdom. But there's also judgment that goes with that decision. There's accountability that comes with our choices. Verse 9, therefore go into the highways and as many as you can find, invite to the wedding. I got a fattened cow ready to eat. I want people to eat it. Somebody's going to eat this cow. So invite them all. Verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, we need to unpack this one because, again, this is one of those passages you can take out of context and not see the entirety of what Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to here. He is still answering the Pharisees. And this is a really hard message. Like verse 14 alone, people get caught up on that and you can have whole sects build out of that. Um, let's go back to verse 8. Not worthy there. Again, the Greek is to weigh in. So it has a, again, we're being consistent when they took it lightly. It's the opposite word of that. So they didn't, they didn't take the invitations lightly, and now they are not having weight of themselves. The substance that we have is based on who we serve. Honestly, we're just flesh bags walking around on a planet in the middle of the universe, right? We don't count for much. Our weight and our substance is only and entirely based on who we worship and who we serve. So if you want to serve things that humans have made, go for it. It's not worth much. If you want to serve God, you start to gain significance in an eternal sense. So these people that reject the sun have no substance. They're not worthy. They don't weigh anything. It says go into the highways, basically take it on the road. That's exactly what Jesus has trained his disciples to do. And when he comes back and sends them out with the Great Commission, it's exactly what he tells them to do. Tell everybody that there is salvation for anybody who wants it. That's the gift. And virtually everyone who hears this that wasn't one of the elite asked to come in initially, we should be grateful and excited about it. The wedding hall is full. So, you know, one question, when it comes to evangelism, like, does everybody we know in our life know that there's a wedding feast to go to? Even the ones that reject it, do they at least know the gospel? Have they heard it? And rejecting it is between them and God, but is everyone invited? And it says bad and good. That's an interesting thing. People get caught up on that. Remember Jesus told the parable about the wheat and the tares? And he's just going to let them both grow up together and he'll sort them out at the harvest time? Same thing with the church. In the church, we have wheat and we have tares. But everybody's welcome to the church, right? You can come in and hear the word of God get taught. Most people don't want to tolerate hearing the word get, of God get taught. But for the ones that do, welcome in. Come on in and hear it. So the question that should lead us to is, if there's both bad and good in the church or bad and good at the wedding feast and then the king goes around and starts looking for things to judge, the huge question we should have is what is this wedding garment and what should we be putting on in this life so we're ready for the next life? So it says they're gathered together, uh, at least everybody who's willing to come, and then the king comes in um, and the king starts to sort it out and he sees this wedding garment situation where they just show up and again, remember in Jewish weddings, they were provided the wedding garment. They didn't have to do that on their own, especially with a king's wedding or a rich person's wedding. They were dressed so that they would fit in or 
appear to be worthy of that king's hall. So specifically, the garment here is in the Greek enduma. It's an outer garment or cloak or something you put on over your clothes. It's a robe that you clothe yourself in. And the tradition of this gift is that they would cover up something that wouldn't, you know, they would wear basically underwear under it, but it would cover up their sin, their work clothes, their, their, their dirt, their, the stuff they bring with them. And at least from the outside, they would fit in. So the other word, induma, is also translated. I thought this was awesome. When they made these cloaks, a lot of times the ancient Jews would make them out of sheepskins. So they would be a, a soft, supple. The best skins to make it out of are the lamb skins. And oftentimes those lamb skins came from the sacrificed lambs because they would be going to that, that place. So this outer wedding garment um, would be made out of it. If you want to see where that plays in, go to Matthew 7, verse 15. It's the exact same word that's getting used there. It's this lamb's sheepskin that's put on. It's a commonly used across the Bible as that kind of lambskin kind of piece. So you come to the wedding, part of the willingness to put on your new cloak is to honor that king. You want to honor the son who's getting married. And the reason you put on the lambskin is because you want, to, you want to be celebrated. So you got this person who shows up at the wedding and they don't even bother to put on the cloak. How insulting is that? Like From God's perspective, from the king's perspective, like who do you think you are? And you look at this, and it's, it's this attitude of, I'll do whatever I want. I don't, I don't owe anybody honor. I don't need to put on a cloak that you gave me. I'm not obligated to do it your way. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to do it my way. And this person's thinking probably that this is going to be good. So we're all invited to come to the kingdom. Some of them try to get in, but without the Lamb's righteousness covering us, without coming through Jesus Christ, there's no way to this Father but through the Son. Right? If you don't come through Christ, you're going to get kicked out. So there's this idea, like some people think that many are called, few are chosen, is this idea of losing salvation. But the picture we get in this parable is this person never had it. They didn't come with the garment on. Right? You can't lose what you never had. So if that idea of like, you know, I'm going to come to the wedding. Again, there's people that reject the wedding. There's people that went to their farm, their businesses, and were hostile towards the wedding. Those people aren't even in the room right now. It's people that say, oh yeah, I like God. I want to be with God, but I want to do it my way. I want to wear my clothes to the wedding. That idea of self-righteousness, where I'm going to build myself up and I think I'm getting in, Jesus is talking to Pharisees, Sadducees, people who think that they're righteous. They're not righteous in that they haven't put on the robe or the cloak that they were given. So this is an archetype of unaffected people. People that they're indifferent, they're, they're not indifferent, they're not hostile, they're, but they're unaffected. They believe in God, but they don't serve God. This is something that should make all of us live out our faith in fear and trembling. I just don't want to be that person. And the good news is you don't have to be. So this person might have the words to say, but there isn't a change of heart. They might have praise to sing, but there's nothing, there's no prayer behind their praise. There's no passion in what they do, but they might do things. So if we have a desire for the things of God, if we don't want the things of God, why would we even want to be in heaven? Like to sing the praises of the Lord God should be something we think see as a gift. To hear the word of God be taught faithfully, like, wow, what a gift. That's just a blessing. I just need that. So there's this provision of salvation that God offers. People accept it. And this is where I want to bounce along because I really want to understand this concept. They walk in wanting the free meal, but they don't want to pay honor to the king or to the son who's getting married. That's a dangerous place to be. So really, we don't want to do that either. We don't want to show up in front of the king and all we got is our dirty work of sin in our life to show for, our, for what we've done. We need new robes. So Galatians 3.27, as many of you who are baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. The language gets used by the disciples too. When we, when we, were, when we put on Christ, the Lamb of God, the, it's the first thing that everybody should see when they meet us. We're God people. We're Jesus people. Again, with that market lady, it was like, well, I'm a God person, so if you don't want me there, that's, I can deal with that. Revelations 19.8. And to her, the bride, the church, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is, this is where we get the key to unlock this image, the, the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. When we serve the king, we don't do it for our salvation, we do it because we love the Lord. 
So there's something to do. Why would you come to a wedding and not put on the works of righteousness? Why would you say, I'm going to follow Christ and then not do things that are godly or just keep living your own way? So we put on righteousness, not because we're righteousness, but because he's righteous. I like that we got to talk about that song today, right? It's not, it's not our righteousness that gets us in. It's God's righteousness. Romans 12.1, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We can't, ex- we can't give our bodies to God if they're impure or they're imperfect. The idea is God makes us righteous, and then we say, okay, you made us righteous. The rest of our life is yours to have. We'll do whatever you want. That's reasonable. When God gives us a robe to put it on for his wedding is a reasonable thing to ask. So we have a lifetime to prepare ourselves. And I want to make sure everybody's understanding this. We don't do things because we're saved by our works. We do works because we're already saved. It's a very different theology. It leads very different places. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and all, 1 Thessalonians 3, just as we do to you. Grow in love. That's how we put on our righteousness. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. We're at the wedding feast. We're with all the saints. It's with for Jesus Christ. And before God, before the judgment seat, we want to be blameless in holiness, and we can't do that on our own. we got to put on the garments. So these aren't the enemies of God showing up at the wedding. These are people that want to be at the wedding. But they're deceived into thinking they can get there on their own terms. They're indifferent to what God asks them to do. Verse 12, the response is speechlessness, right? In the Greek, it's phimeo. It means to muzzle or to stop the mouth. The implication of that is, it's not them that are, they don't. It's not that they're not choosing to speak. It's that they can't speak. They've been stopped from talking. They've been muzzled. There's nothing to say because there's no excuse for showing up to the wedding all scrappy looking. That's for me, absolutely convicting and encouraging and inspiring. Like if I keep trying to do things to make myself more appealing to God, that's an endless work that will never end and it has no results. But if I can just say, God, I'm just going to put on the robe you gave me and I'm going to have to trust in Jesus, what a release from that pressure. So it's kind of like the Pharisees unable to speak when, he, when they gave him the John the Baptist question last week. These wedding guests can't say anything. Remember, Jesus is telling these parables because they can't even open their They're just dumbfounded at what he's saying. So they're told, here it is, and then they can't talk. The, verse 13 has the, the verbs bind, take, and cast. <laughs> At this point, they lose control over their own destiny. They are picked up and taken by the king or by the king's servants or soldiers, and they lose their autonomy at this point, and they're punished. To be cast into outer darkness implies that at the wedding feast, there's light. It's lit up with candles. It's a festival. And when you go out in the middle of the night and there's no streetlights in the first century, it is dark outside and cold. So they're in the dark, and if you've ever been outside like a tavern when everything's hopping in the tavern, like it feels like it's warm and it's, you can hear people yelling and laughing and glasses clinking. So you're just sitting outside, and when it says in verse 13, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, both of those have to do with regret and despair, right? It's not pain. It's just that pain of realizing everybody else is having fun, and because of your idiocy, you're sitting out here in the cold sitting next to other people that made the same decision. So Jesus is going to talk about these things. This idea of weeping and gnashing the teeth, the outer darkness, um, clearly that's an image of hell. And we don't talk about hell in the same proportion that Jesus did. Jesus talked way more about hell than he talks about heaven in his teachings, if you look at all four Gospels. The idea that there is a hell, being uh, hell is the absence of the wedding feast. God's got this wonderful future plan for us and there's people that won't be part of it and they'll know that they're not part of it and that's the hell. That's the torture is that you can't be there. You're thirsty, but you can't get a drink. For many are called and few are chosen. Then we get to this point. Jesus sums up the point of the parable. Pharisees, you think you're in? You might not be in. And the arrogance they show towards Jesus is really showing off where they're at. So, We have the free will to go to the wedding, but God also has the choice to choose who gets to stay. And it has to do with our relationship with Jesus, which goes back to the question we saw a couple chapters ago, who
who do you think Jesus is? And is he your bridegroom? Is he your king? Are you serving him or not? So we have to honor the bridegroom. We have to give to God what is God's. And that is kind of the question we should be asking passionately is, what does it mean to be covered properly and how do we do this? And the next parable then ties right into that. Give to God what's God's. That's what he's asking us to do. So then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent him to their disciples with the Herodians. Herodians are... Um, Herodians are Roman sympathizers. They called them Herodians because they agreed with Herod. So they're Jewish people that really appreciate the secular world. They like what the secular world has to offer. And in this, they're powerful. They're very rich as a group of people. They're wealthy because the Romans have made them wealthy. But they're hated by the, the mainstream Jewish population. So when the Pharisees and the Herodians are teaming up in any way, shape, or form, this is kind of a, like, there's people that believe this isn't true because those two groups would just never work together. So again, you have this kind of weird bedfellows kind of thing, but there's lots of different people that hate believers that are awake and alive. So the Pharisees uh, now uh, send their proxies, the Herodians. Uh, partially, the Pharisees don't want to be humiliated again. Remember, they were speechless. So they, they send other people. Um, this is gutlessness. It's cowardice when you have to send other people to do your entangling. And here's the entangle. Saying, they say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Therefore, tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is when you hear the bum, bum, bum in the music. This is the question. Um, this entangling uh, that they're doing. Notice, first of all, that the entangling comes with flattery. Clearly, these people don't think he's the way of God or teaching in truth. Uh, they call him teacher, but they haven't been his students at all. So they come with flattery, saying all sorts of nice things. When people you barely know come to you with lots of flattery, watch out, right? There's an agenda there usually. So they think Jesus, this is, the other thing is, this is like, look at how they're underestimating Jesus. They think if they just give Jesus compliments, that that's what he's looking for. He's looking for praise. Uh, again, that's, they're missing the point with Jesus. The, the other phrase in there, do, nor do you care about anyone. That doesn't just mean they're calling Jesus thoughtless. It's kind of like you will teach the truth no matter what people think of you. Because you just did that with the Pharisees. You just angered the Pharisees, but you're teaching truth. So the Herodians probably liked a little bit that the, the Pharisees were speechless. They probably thought that was kind of funny. Um, so they're asking a question because they know that to answer this question is a deadly thing. People would, like we'd say, don't talk religion and politics. This is both, right? <laughs> and they're giving him a question that if you really don't care what people think about you, then you'll answer this question truthfully. And in the Jewish community, there are people that thought they shouldn't pay taxes to Rome. Rome hadn't conquered Palestine for that long. Right? So they're kind of new conquerors of the area, and there is still a lot of resistance to their rule. So this lawfulness to pay taxes is an obvious trap. If he says, yes, you should pay your taxes, he loses the people because the people don't like Rome. If he says, no, the Romans will flat out kill him as a rebel. Like, this is a deadly question. That's why it says they're, they're entangling him in verse 15. Like, they're trying to get him killed. And so you say things against Rome. Rome, uh, historically, for 800 years, had no patience for that. Like any sign of resistance to Rome's rule, and they would end you. So Roman law says to pay. Jewish law um, <laughs> does not say that you pay your oppressors, right? So there's a conflict here. Also, sitting in Jesus' disciples is a formal tax collector and Simon the Zealot, who actually were out killing tax collectors, right? So he's got two disciples. He's going to probably lose one no matter how he answers it. And I always like taking these questions and trying to forget how Jesus answers them and then think, how would I have even handled that kind of a question, right? So today, if you have a, a large group of people following you from different walks of life and you ask a hot button question, you're going to lose half of them. Our country's divided almost 50-50 on almost every one of these hot button issues. You pick it, we're split on it. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, Jesus is handed one of these hot-button political issues, and look at how he handles it. Verse 18, Jesus first perceived their wickedness. He's not stupid. He sees through the flattery. He sees through the trick question. He perceives their wickedness. These people are trying to kill me, and I understand that. 
And he says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Instead of angering half of the crowd, he goes after the Herodians. I think this is kind of brilliant. You guys are hypocrites. You guys are empty. You're, you don't have the answers either. You're asking me a question you don't know the solution to. But you're asking me because you want me to put my foot in it. I just love how he handles that, right? And we get that sometimes. Oh, you're a Christian? Well, then how do you deal with this? Who are you to ask me that question? Are you honestly trying to seek the Lord? Or are you just trying to trap me in some sort of verbal game? So when he comes back saying, why are you trying to test me? Why are you trying to entangle me? Why are you trying to capture me? What's the point of that? And the hypocrite thing is there, you're calling me a teacher, but that's a lie, right? So he calls them out on their, what they're doing there in front of everybody. This is in front of the crowds in the temple courtyard. So Jesus unentangles the conversation. This is a test. Oh, you're testing me. I see what you're doing. And truth lo loves to be in the light. But this entangling, weaselly stuff hates to be in the light. So bringing it out into the open. Jesus then clarifies who the speaker is. I'm dealing with a hypocrite, <laughs> right? I'm dealing with somebody who says I'm their teacher, but I'm not their teacher. I don't know you, right? And, 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 and what you say doesn't have a lot of weight. And then he, he answers, which I just think is amazing because verse 18 kind of handles it. Like, let's talk about why you're testing me. What's, are, are you try, are, there's a wickedness to what you're doing. Why are you so wicked? But in 19, I think he gracefully still gives an answer that nobody expected. Verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and description is on this? We've all heard this story. And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they had heard these words, they marveled, and they left him, and they went their way. So Matthew chooses to include this story because it's a significant judgment call. When Jesus does this, he handles the questions that they couldn't handle themselves. He's actually unraveling the hot-button issues for people with wisdom and with truth, and it covers a major question of all of human history for Christians. Do we fight against our rulers, or do we submit to our rulers? <clears throat> And Jesus, again, shows wisdom here. There are two kingdoms, which he talked about way back in chapter 5. There's a heavenly kingdom and an earthly kingdom, and we have obligations to both kingdoms. We are under the rule of God, and we're under the rule of our civic authority. So in a democracy, an expectation of a citizen in a democracy is we're expected to vote and pay taxes. Actually, every government ever, you're supposed to pay taxes. That doesn't go away. There's death and there's taxes. But we're expected to vote in a democracy, so we're obligated to do that. So we have that authority over us. We, pay, pay, we are expected to pay taxes, so as Christians we pay taxes. The government can have whatever money they want. The rest of the things that are, are the things that we don't do. Most laws to not do something. Don't murder, don't kill, don't steal. So we don't do things that our government doesn't want us to do. So there are things that belong to God, however. The word render there in the Greek is to return something or give it back. In other words, if Caesar printed his face on the coin, he had it in his you know, possession at some point. So you've gained something that, that you didn't make. You didn't make the coin. So it's his coin to have back. So if that's the case, and the, then what are the things that are God's? On what has God put his image? Where has he put his inscription? And I think that's awesome, right? So in civic matters, we honor our government to the point where they ask for things that belong to God. And you know my opinion on this. When they say you can't meet as a fellowship, that belongs to God. You don't get that. And that's the thing where we, we are as, we're as blameless as we can be in our society. So there are things that belong to God. I'm going to name a few things and give Bible verses with each one because Jesus just sets it all up with this. If we give to God what are God's, that's how we put on the robe of righteousness. It goes with the wedding feast parable. First of all, human beings belong to God, right? So Genesis 1:27, God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. Our body, our mind, and our soul were made with the imprint of God, just like that coin belongs to Caesar. Our bodies and our minds and our souls belong to God. There's people that reject that, but they, that's the image of God is just like the image of Caesar, only he put his image on our hearts. I just think that's beautiful. The church belongs to God. Matthew 16, 18, we already covered this. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, 
and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Who owns, what is God's? God owns the church. A collection of people, a gathering of people in God's name. The other thing that belongs to God is his word. When he says something, he owns it. So Deuteronomy 11, 18, Therefore you shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your head and they shall be as frontless, frontless be, be, before your eyes. When we study the Bible, that is a spiritual act. It's a huge commitment to God and it's doing what God's commanded us to do. We're supposed to put these words and inscribe them on our hearts. Why? Because our hearts belong to God. Worship and praise belong to God or our love belongs to God. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He's already taught people what belongs to God, right? This is already part of Jesus' teachings. Our tithes and offerings belong to God. Exodus 23, 19, the first of the first fruits of your land you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Um, tithe then, in my opinion, comes before taxes. And we can talk about that afterwards, like different people feel differently on that. But the very first of income belongs to God, and he claims it. It's his. So our tithes and our offerings. God has resources. He doesn't need them. Every beast of the field is mine and a cattle on a thousand hills. We don't give tithe because God's broke. We give tithe because God wants our hearts to not cling to money. And, and here's the last one of what God has claimed. I just thought this was interesting, and it doesn't fit with the rest. Vengeance belongs to God. I just... I'll just share this from Romans 12, 19. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's claimed it. So one of those things we wish we could have, he's asked, he's taken it. And when you become a servant of a living God and you give to God what he has asked for or what he's claimed, Caesar asks for taxes, God asks for vengeance. You got vengeance, you got to give it to him. He wants your People, the church, the word, praise, tithes, resources, and he, he wants us to give that vengeance over to him. So the Rome can keep their darn coins, right? God's still getting the best stuff. So this image of God imprinted on my soul, I belong to him. If the Jews had just honored God, I don't think they'd be controlled by the Romans right now. Right? Part of why Israel gets put into these submissive positions from other conquering countries is they haven't given to God what's God's first. So then they find that the world owns them. So then you get the Sadducees, the next group coming up. Again, they're all taking their turns. It's like a tag team death match. Can somebody in this courtyard stump this Jesus guy because he's driving us nuts? So they come up with their big question. The same day, and that's important, we're still on day three of this, this week of... Uh, the temple, the same day the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him and asked, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry a wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there are with us seven brothers. The first died after he married, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, likewise the second also, and the third and the seventh. Last of all, the woman died too. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. So this is their big trick, trick question that they got. Sodicees are like progressive theologians today. They don't believe in the supernatural. They do selective reading of the Word of God. In fact, they only looked at the Torah. They didn't believe the prophets. They didn't look at the Psalms um, or even the histories. They really only stuck to the Torah, and they disregarded all other parts of the Old Testament. Essentially, they just believed in what they could see. That was the Sodicees. And they were usually pretty wealthy. They got along great with the Romans. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in resurrection. There's no spirit in you. You, you just live, you die, and, and nothing after that. So they're naturalists. Um, so what they're trying to do here is take a literal reading of the Bible for those people that just believe what the Bible says, and they're trying to trip you up on what you know the Bible says. So they take this kind of... They, they're coming from Deuteronomy 25, if you want the cross-reference. And there's a law in Deuteronomy 25... The purpose of the law, the spirit of the law, is that when a man dies, you don't just throw the woman to the street. And families in the, prior to the law would do this. So they're basically saying, don't take your widows and make them destitute homeless people. right? Keep them in the family. There's also the idea of the law of the land allotment of Israel going down to brothers. So we don't keep this law anymore, but with 
the Israel, uh, in, in the ancient Israel, they had to do this because they wanted that land allotment to stay in the family. So the brother would then take that wife in. Uh, you know, we, we would assume that that brother then would have kids with her, but then those kids would get the land that the dead brother would have had, right? So that's the purpose of the law. It has nothing to do with the resurrection. Um, and they're nitpicking this law. And I, and I think we should notice, for wisdom's sake, how they nitpick. One, they nitpick by taking a non-existent situation. Seven brothers each going through a wife. And they say, we have with us here, but we don't get that person named. I mean, it's kind of like a hypothetical situation. So hypothetically, if that's the case, then what about this? And we get that hypothetical situation when we're doing apologetics with people. First of all, if you can avoid a, a, an argument, that's wonderful. But when we're actually dealing with people that are sincerely trying to untangle their faith and work this out, we'll get some of these what-if fantasy arguments. Well, what if this? And what they're doing is they're taking obscure or virtually non-existent situations, and then they're using that to argue against the principle of the thing. Where in ancient Israel, a judge would say, yeah, in this situation, we're not going to do that. So God says to choose mercy, not sacrifice in these situations. So he put the law in the hands of human beings with brains that could think. But when you're doing theoretical conversations, I can go to fantasy land and then, and then assume that there's no such thing as judgment in the application of the law. Make sense? Okay, so they take a ridiculous situation, stretch the plausibility, and then they go. We get this today. And, you know, I'm, I'm just going to hit some of these hot issues because they're going to tick us off and give us lots to talk about over lunch. One, in abortion, what about the case of rape or incest? Okay, that's in a, it's a vast minority of abortions. But that's the argument that people will tackle. What about these very rare situations that come up where that happens? Are you then not going to, or does your principle on abortion still stand that abortion's wrong in those situations? So they'll go to fantasy or in gender theory, which is a hot button. I just tried to pick the hot ones today. What about hermaphrodites? Okay, hermaphrodites, vast minority of cases. We're going to fantasy land. One in 83,000 births are a hermaphrodic birth. And most of those births, uh, of the 500 in the United States today, like that's a pretty small number, only two of those would be considered fertile by doctors. Like they're not gonna reproduce, right? There's a genetic mutation, something went wrong to the point where they're not gonna be reproducing or anything like that. So that argument is to take the hypothetical, the stretched, plausible, minuscule thing and then apply it to everybody like we don't have judgment. Or in theology, what if you were the only person on the planet? Would God do X, Y, and Z? Okay, I'm not the only person on the planet. That's a, that's a completely fantasy situation, so I'm not going to argue doctrine from a place of fantasy. I want to issue doctrine from a place of where the Word of God's coming from. Does this make sense, that, that stretched? So that's what they're doing here. Well, what about this situation with marriages? If there's really a resurrection, how are you going to deal with this situation? So these are, it's a curious question, but it's kind of a sideshow question at some level. The reality is the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, so they're trying to make it look preposterous. And then we get this theologically too. Well, if there is a God, how could he allow evil? How could that happen? Well, that looks great on a bumper sticker, but it, I'm not going to suit my life on a bumper sticker phrase or ignorant, simple thinking. Right? I, maybe I should understand how evil happens and from what the Bible says it is before I go with the whole bumper sticker logic thing. If Jesus were the Messiah, well, why doesn't he do a miracle for us right now? If Jesus is real, ask him to send down thunder. And I'm like, do you really want me to ask that? Like, do you, really? Because like, there's the whole thing with the, the prophets and the, the, the Baal prophets and you know, fire did come down from heaven, but... Those kinds of questions are the kinds we're getting from the Sadducees here. And Jesus handles them just like Jesus does. Jesus answered them and said, you're mistaken. You're wrong. I just love the bluntness of this. Try saying this to people that are hot-headed and they think they got the question and they're, they're coming at you with those apologetics things and you're just like, you're wrong. And not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. You haven't read the word and you really don't think God has power. So there's two things that they're failing. They're failing out of ignorance and they're fa failing out of not understanding the truth of God. So the intellectualism, uh, when you say somebody's mistaken when they're coming at you as an intellectual, I just love how God does this because 
you know, coming out of academia, uh, this is just such brutal language, right? No scholar, when somebody gets done with a presentation, wants somebody to stand up and say, you're mistaken. Um, so not knowing the scriptures, uh, it, they've likely read them as the Sadducees, but they don't know them. And, and this is the difference between reading the Bible and understanding the Bible. Having someone go through the script or understanding the full counsel of God to take things out of context or to take things where we understand what God's saying. So we can read an argument or we can understand an argument. So these are very different goals. When you open up the Bible, are you reading to just get an argument answered? Or are you reading the Bible because you want to know what God has to say about it? And they're very different approaches to it. So beware of these big three, three things that the Sadducees do. First, they want to argue. Beware of that. Don't, don't get into arguments with people. Bickering just doesn't work. Nobody comes to Jesus because they lost an argument. They want to focus on a singular passage. Beware of that. This is a, and they're taking it out of context. That passage had nothing to do with resurrection, right? So they're focusing on a singular passage going, what about this verse? When people do that, they're absolutely using the Bible as their tool. They're not trying to seek for understanding. And then third, they're going into hypotheticals and fantasy situations. When those three things happen, verse 30. Jesus, or verse 29, you're mistaken and you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I just think that answer really is good. Verse 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor they're given in marriage, but they're like the angels of God in heaven. So Jesus uses both resurrection and angels, the two things the Sadducees don't believe in. <laughs> so he goes right at their stuff, right? Oh, you're mistaken. God does think killing a baby is murder right? They go right at the stuff that they know darn well. Jesus knows absolutely well that the Sadducees, that's the two things they reject, right? No, believing doesn't make it true. So his use of angels and his jab at materialism, and he upholds the word of God all in the same sentence. This is how Jesus, don't pick a fight with Jesus. So we know this. So the uh, humans will be like angels. Again, we, in the context of this, we know from Genesis 6 too, we had this kind of odd thing. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them as wives of all which they chose. It's not that the angels can't have sex. Like, isn't, like you're going, oh, okay. So Jesus isn't saying angels don't have sex. They're just fluffy bunnies floating on clouds. He's not saying that because they did have sex in Genesis 6 too. It's that they're, they, they're not interested in it. There's other things to do in heaven like praising the Lord God Almighty or going to the wedding feast and, and, and dining in the wedding feast. So they say they won't marry uh, in the next life and we won't, it, that, I, that idea that verse 30 is to say we won't marry in the next life is not to say that we won't recognize the people we love. That's the other piece of this that we need to understand. Jesus tells another story in Luke 16, 27 about the dead being concerned for their family. Of, I have five brethren Please go back and testify them, lest they also come to this place of torment. When, when we're in heaven, we're, not, we're like the angels in that we're praising God, and that's what we're spending our time on. And two, we also know who people are. It's not that we won't recognize our husbands and wives when we get to heaven. We'll know who people are. And Jesus has already taught that in, the, in, 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 in that situation. The pleasures of this life will simply be less important than the pleasures of the next, Revelations 21, 22. What God's got prepared for us is so much better than what we have here. And marriage is trying to be an image of our relationship with God. So God instituted that, he made that institution for that purpose. So when we're in heaven and God's with us and ruling among us, we simply have other things to do. Or we underestimate the power of God. And we don't understand what he's preparing for us exactly. So Jesus does all of that in one sentence. It's amazing. It takes me more to explain the sentence than it did for him to just do it. Then, the, then he goes straight at the hot-button topic that divides the Sadducees from the Pharisees. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, I like how Jesus does this, like one sentence on their topic, and then he's just going to teach them about the resurrection of the dead, this thing the Sadducees reject. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, and again, he's pulling this from the Torah, so he uses the only books that they recognize. He's using them here. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Jason, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He just shut down the conversation. So in verse 32, I am the God of is what would be emphasized here. And I think when Jesus says this, he would have said, God is saying, I am. 
am the God of Abraham, right? He's putting huge emphasis on that word because if, if they were dead, he would say, I was the God of Abraham. So the emphasis in the Greek here is on the present tense of that word. Interesting, if you translate it into the Hebrew, the Hebrew doesn't necessarily have that. Hebrew doesn't have tenses all the time. But in the Greek, there's a, it's like God picked his language for the New Testament, right? Because he wanted to parse these things out. So this is from Exodus 3.6, by the way, where God's speaking to Moses, which they see as valid. And it's an example of how God, I think, carefully constructed every single word in the Bible. Like, when you go to Exodus 3.6, that passage doesn't have much to do with the resurrection either. But Jesus is using a particular word and saying, look at how God referred to himself in the present tense here. So when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished as his teaching, uh, ek plasiso, um, which mean, literally means to be blown away, to be cast off or blown aside. Like this teaching would just blew their mind because they'd been wrestling with this Pharisee Sadducee thing forever. And Jesus is like, well, God's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. So why would he say I'm the God of Abraham if Abraham's dead? There's a life after death. And that's Jesus' claim. And the people are just blown away. The result of being impressed by God, I think, is to understand this. Remember, the same crowd's going to turn on Jesus. So they're not blown away into submitting to God, but they are entertained. Like, this was a delightful... It's like watching a YouTube clip where somebody just smacks somebody down verbally, right? The, the clarity, simplicity, and the heuristic solution that Jesus gives us here shows his wisdom. This is God himself explaining his own words. This is what I meant when I said this. So the scribes, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. <laughs> so picture the past enemies of Jesus all getting together into a supervillain you know, team up. Then one of them, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great, greatest commandment of all? So they give him another test. Um, the Pharisees ID 613 Old Testament commands from God. So of those 613 commands, one of the things the Pharisees would try to do is rank them. Which one's more important than this one? So which sin is worse than other sins? Which commandment's the best than other commandments? So they, would, so they say to pick one. So if whatever one he picks out of 613 commands, they can simply say, well, then you oppose this other one. You've ever heard people use this tactic? Well, if you're for that person, then you're against this person. No, I never said I was against this person, but you are, right? So this is what they're trying to do. Uh, if he says don't steal, then they're going to say then he approves of murder, right? That's the trap. And Jesus says to him, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We'll end with this passage tonight. Um, at this point, they're so upset. I, I, this is, I'm just trying to play this out like a movie. At this point, they're so rattled by Jesus just taking all of these big topics and just nailing them. And this idea that they're kind of gathering together in verse 34. And then a lawyer, like when your lawyer is your last result, Things have gone wrong, right? This is not good. So Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Like they're asking him a question that actually every Jewish kid at age three starts to hear. All the Jewish families taught their kids the Shema, right? The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And these words, which I command you today, shall be in your heart. They actually were a command. Jesus told them, commanded them, to teach these things to your children. So then he adds the second from Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm the Lord. So he takes those two commands, he puts them together, he puts them in order, right? Here's the top, here's number one, here's number two. And he sums up the law and the prophets in verse 40 that on those two commandments, everything else follows. Because most of the commandments are things not to do. These are two things that you do. And he puts, if you do these two things, you don't have to worry about all the not to's, the 613 other things you're not supposed to do. So he puts them in order. He lines it up and he kicks back something that every kid in that temple mount knew. And every one of those Pharisees and Sadducees were taught this as a young child. 
is there were parents in Jewish culture that wanted this to be the first thing their kids would say. So instead of going mama or dada to try to get them to say that first, they would say the Shema. <laughs> like that's the first thing they wanted to have come out of their kid's mouth. So when he puts a kid verse back at them, he's showing them how childlike they are. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the roots. Let's go back to where it all starts and where it all matters. Loving your neighbor as yourself gives this purpose to serving people. Everybody loves themselves, like for the most part, unless you're clinically depressed. Like most people like themselves, and we want to take, even depressed people want attention for their depression, right? And they're probably looking at themselves too much. So to love other people like yourself is to, to one idea, going against natural tendencies, and to fight against those natural tendencies to love other people in a sacrificial way. Matthew 25, 40, he's going to get to this and explain, and the king will answer them and say, Assuredly, I say to you, insomuch as you did to the least of these of my brethren, you did it to me. When we are nice to one another, even when we're annoying, God sees that as an absolute gift in his kingdom. And that when we love our neighbor, it doesn't say to like our neighbor, but to love them and act in a way that's loving. I think of like families that we don't always get along in our families, but we still love one another, right? And the love God uses here, and, and a Greek has a number of words for love. The one he's using here is agape. It means unconditional love. Despite difficulty, despite troubles, despite arguments, despite everything, despite hurt feelings, we still love people. Agape love, unconditional. There's no condition to this love. It exists whether or not. So to love without condition with people sometimes means to, to tell them the truth. Sometimes they may not, not want to hear the truth, but you tell them because you love them, right? And that, again, when it talks about this idea of, of loving one another, that means when parents agape love their children, they discipline their children. That Sometimes love means a spanking. Sometimes love means not getting the sweets that that kid wanted, even though they're crying for them. Sometimes love means marching that kid back to the grocery store so they can pay for that gum they stole. Right? Sometimes love is to reprimand when kids are being annoying. When we love one another, sometimes we reprimand one another. Sometimes we tell each other when we do things wrong. Uh, we do it in love, and, and we trust each other in love. And I would say love has to do with trust too. Last but not least, love is defined. The greatest kind of love we have is defined. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, same word, agape, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have an everlasting life. When God gives his son, he's giving of himself. He makes a sacrifice. No greater love than this, that, that, that greater love has no, has no one than this that to lay down one's life for his friend. We give our lives for one another, we're loving. And that's what we do. There's nothing better than that. David talked about Jonathan, like that brotherly love. There was nothing greater for him. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Submit to God, submit to serving others. Now, I know one of the conversations we'll have is, well, do we have to love ourselves before we love others? That's a tough question, but it's not in this passage. The first two things we need to do is to love God. And I think if we love God, we see ourselves as his children. And that in truth, we are God's creation. And in that sense, you could say we love ourselves, but Biblically speaking, the phrase to love yourself is usually associated with sin. But to love the Lord God Almighty is to actually treat ourselves better than we could loving ourselves. When we love God, we're doing the best possible thing for ourselves. And, and in that, we're prepared to submit and serve others. So on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. It's really tidy. From this point on, Jesus doesn't really deal with the, the religious bullies anymore. He turns to the multitudes and he teaches about the religious bullies. But this is a really good, I know there's like a paragraph left, but it's a chapter break, and what happens at the end of this chapter really sets up the next chapter. So we'll do chapter 23 with that little paragraph next week. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. And Lord, even convicting messages, ones that are tough to swallow, but we want to be at your wedding feast, and Lord, we want to be wearing your righteousness, not ours. Um, Lord, we just... Um, appreciate your teaching, uh, even the tough stuff, and we appreciate how you handled the Pharisees. Uh, Lord, we have all dealt with people that receive the invitation to the wedding with joy. We have met people that receive the invitation and they're indifferent to it. 
those that are too busy for it, those that are too interested in, in, in the things of this world, uh, and Lord, even people that are hostile to the gospel. And, and we feel sorry for those people. They're missing out. Um, may our invitation always be one of come to the feast, come and see, uh, that we always welcome people to the kingdom and we always invite them to the kingdom. We know that you'll sort them out, Lord, uh, but for us to be good servants, our jobs to share that message and invite folks. Lord, may the word of God dwell in us. May the teachings, may Matthew chapter um, 21 just resonate with us all week. May we remember these verses, remember these stories as we go into situations this week. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.